Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope that this message from Pastor Jason Charles and the City Collective team challenges and inspires you. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Not Happy New Year. It's also Happy New Year, but today it's the last day of Christmas. Did you know that? It's the 12 days of Christmas, right? It's technically still Christmas, so say joy to the world to somebody or revel in the happiness of Christ's birth, of God coming to humanity and, and flesh like you and me. Make it a party. Christmas goes for a long time because it's really, really important. And it's, you know, epiphany starting tomorrow and New Year's and everything like that. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like, like I'm not Jason's people. Uh, like, I'm, like, or, like I'm, I'm his people, not he's not my people. Like, he's like... We're good friends, um, and I wanted to take the moment just to acknowledge that we gather in the name of Jesus. We've sung it, and I want it to be in your ears. I want it to be on my mouth. I want to say that name often. I want it to be heard right here in your heart. I want it to be heard in your whole body, because when you finally and truly hear and experience not just the name, but the person of Jesus, oh, it, everything's, the whole world's different. It's like New Year's Day every day. I'm not trying to present to you a false spirituality where everything's happy and like, yay, yay. Not that it won't be hard, but you have a new and truest, better sense of hope than you've ever, ever had in your whole life because of a truest encounter with Jesus Christ. And I wasn't even planning to say that. The Spirit just gives me these things to say. Um, I have a couple notes I'm going to be walking along with here. I want to just acknowledge sort of my relationship with you guys. Many of you I've never even met before, but I've been praying for you guys. And I came early this morning, and I was around your neighborhood, and I was praying for all those guys, because the Spirit's at work. Um, this is City Collective Church, as you all know, of course. Uh, and you guys have been going for just over a year now. And I first met Jason about two and a half or three years ago, and I was a part of a group that went down to church planter assessment, and I was sort of his sponsor. And uh, is there would be good with images up there? I have a picture of Jason and I. There, it, oh, look at that. There's Jason, and on the far left is our El Presidente, Glenn Peterson, uh, and then Edward and his wife, Christine. They also just started a new church in uh, Toronto area called Encounter Church, and we were down together with sort of a Canadian contingent to kind of discern the spirit, to say, is God calling Jason at this time to plant a church for the covenant? And we said agreed with the Holy Spirit and said, yes, and so here we are, hallelujah. I want to show you one other image. There's a picture that Jason drew um, that's also going to be up on the screen here of uh, us getting to know him. And we, what he had to do, if you can read it from that far, I can't. i got to get up nice and close. Jason had to describe himself to us in his sense of call, and he had to talk about his gifts and talents, things that we didn't know about him, some of his delights and some of his frustrations. And some of his gifts... Whereas that he was very steady and he was a finisher. He was a builder and he's a gatherer. He's a visionary, right? That, that's your pastor, right? That's great. And some of his frustrations are a flakiness or lack of purpose or just um, a meaningless routine. That's Jason, right? Well, and and we, we saw what God's spirit was on him. And we we're really happy about that. I just, in preparing for this and coming to City Collective, I went through some of my phone and pictures I have with Jason. And in September 23rd, no, sorry, June 12th of 2018, there's a picture coming up here of the official agreement being signed with the covenant of this church kind of formally getting started, kind of entering, entering formal relationship. There's Jason, there's Glenn, and uh, there's anything, maybe one, even one more picture after that. Look at that. We're all praying together like we did this morning around the huddle. September 23rd, 2018, I was sitting right about there, first service. Who was here in the house, first service? 
Woohoo! That's awesome. And then September 22nd of this last year, first year anniversary, who was in the house then? Who's in the house this morning? We're here. Okay, you can all put your hand up. That's awesome. Well, Adriana, sorry, Adriana, that's right. I've not met her yet. I've just, I've read her name many times, but I'm learning to pronounce it, Bryce. Adriana and Jason just got married just over a week ago, and we're very happy for them. And he asked me if I could talk about new beginnings. Because it's, you know, the first Sunday of the new year. And I want to talk about forgiveness. And if Jason's going to listen to this later, Jason and Adrian, this is for you guys, because marriage is built on forgiveness. If there's anything marriage is built on, it's forgiveness. If there's anything God's love is built on, it's forgiveness. If there's anything your faith is built on properly, it's forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Loving God, as we have sung as we've just heard in our ears and we've just received by faith in our hearts this declaration that you are about forgiveness. Teach us, O God, in your way. Not in our own way of forgiveness that can be faulty sometimes and miss the mark sometimes. Teach us in the holy and pure and true way of forgiveness, that of the cross of Jesus, that we might be people known, if among nothing else, forgiving people because, O Lord, we experience your forgiveness. May this be by your power, by heavenly power, by Holy Spirit power. Amen. So I'm a bit of a note preacher. I'm, I think Jason's more like uh, moves around a bit. So forgive me if I'm not quite on that style, but I want to bring us into the text of Scripture in John chapter 8. And forgiveness, what I'm going to talk about is our agreement. This is what it is. Forgiveness is our agreement with God's restoration of all things. For when we offer forgiveness, we, in the manner that Christ showed us on the cross, we take the injury of the offense and do not hold it against the perpetrator. The forgiveness does not negate in any way the offense. It just simply refuses to seek retribution or vengeance against the perpetrator. In order for, for forgiveness to come full circle, all the parties involved, the offender, the victim, the community, and of course God, come into agreement about the nature of the offense and the intention of the victim to release the offender from vengeance. Forgiveness, what I'd like to suggest to you, is not unilateral. By that I mean it's not a decision I just make on my own. It is bilateral. It is agreement. It is an arrangement between multiple parties. An agreement that is achieved between an offender and the victim where the truth is told and the victim does not hold the offense against the other party and act toward retribution or vengeance. Thus, I want to call this message dancing lessons because it takes two to tango and it takes two to forgive. It's not a thing done in isolation. Does anybody here have a problem with forgiveness? Don't raise your hand. I'll raise it on behalf of all of us. I know we do. I do. Now, this message is for anyone who's ever felt guilty or for anyone who ever did anything wrong. So what we've done and how we feel about it, they get messed up about these things. And if you do wrong things, and you don't feel guilty about that, we call you a sociopath, right? And if you always feel guilty, and if you've done nothing wrong, you're neurotic. And if you do things wrong, and then you feel guilty about it, that's kind of normal. We call that theological language sort of sin. That's why Christ has died. But this other fourth category, if you're someone who would never have done anything wrong and never have to feel guilty, you must be a Baptist or maybe in the Lord of glory. 
No. Thank you for laughing at my dad jokes. There's a few more to come. I apologize now. <laughs> Ever want to wipe the slate clean? You want to start off not just the year 2020 fresh? Want to this day and the first day of your life for the rest of your years start fresh? Well, let's consider forgiveness. I want to look at the life of Jesus and how he demonstrated a forgiving nature. And I want to offer a couple of warnings. I want you to guard your heart. Because we may, and the Spirit may take you to places in your own heart that might be a little painful for you. So I want you to guard that. Be be aware of that. Because I don't know your pain. I don't know the places. I don't know the stories. I don't know the relationships where there is forgiveness hasn't come full circle. It's hard for you. But I also want to have your, as much as you're guarding it, I want you to open it toward God because he meets us in these memories. Forgiveness is incredibly complex and I want to avoid formulas. However, I do think there are some, some universal principles that can be involved in the power of dynamics as we understand in the teaching and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So be prepared. Guard your heart. Open it to God. Beware of the complexity. And if you can, in your own mind, in that sort of story of the Old Testament, take off your shoes, because when we talk about forgiveness, this is holy ground. Just metaphorically, just like, feel like you can take your shoes off. So let's come to the text here. John chapter 8. I'm actually going to start with the first phrase, last phrase of chapter 7, verse 53. And it reads like this, that we begin the story. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and, Jesus said, and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. Before we go any further, I want to pay attention to some of the movement in the story. Can your imagination pretend that this is an actual live event? or a play being demonstrated before you? Can you create that space in your own mind? How do people move around on the stage in this scene? Where's the coming and the going? Well, it starts off with they all went home. It's like there's a blank screen. No one's there. And this is after a long day of teaching, and there was no small amount of controversy the day before. It was Jesus was teaching in the temple. The crowds all went home, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. And the next morning, Jesus comes back to the temple courts, and it says all the people are there with him. This is not a private affair. This is a very public experience, a public expression. And it says that Jesus sat down to teach. And this is sort of code word here. This is the posture a rabbi, a a professional teacher of the law would do. They would sit down to teach. I stand to teach, and Jesus stands to preach. If this was in the rabbinic tradition, I would be sitting and you would probably all be standing or sitting at my feet. That's sort of like the lingo there. So Jesus is sort of doing this public teaching. And in this sort of like hubbub of things going on in the temple, Jesus teaching and all the people are there. Can you feel the, the movement, the energy of the room, of the space? And then enter stage left another group. And who are these other group? What's going on? And this people come in and the attention is ripped away from Jesus and what he's teaching about the kingdom. I'd love to have heard what Jesus said in that moment, even before he was interrupted. And it's ripped from that, the glory of the teaching of the kingdom, which Jesus is going to teach in a sort of parable, in a real-life scenario here in a moment, to something very dark. And I love how John Ortberg, in his book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, great title, isn't it? 
we unearth some of the dynamics socially going on here. It's a few paragraphs, so bear with me. I think your imagination will catch this story. She had been a young bride with dreams about married life. She dreamt of having a husband who loved her and cherished her, someone to pray with and worship God with, of having children and raising a family, but somehow things didn't turn out the way she had planned. She was disappointed in her husband and disillusioned in her marriage. Maybe it was his fault, or maybe it was her fault, or probably it was some of both. She was set up to fall for another guy, someone who just noticed her, who listened to her, who cared about her. At first, it was all quite innocent, but then one day it crossed a line. And soon after that, it crossed another line, and then another line, until finally it crossed all the lines. It grew into a full-blown affair. For a while, she kept it secret. She was living in one world where she pretended the other didn't exist. She kept herself from thinking what this might do to her kids or her life. She kept herself from thinking about how this was damaging her own soul. The first time she lied to her husband about where she was going so she could be with this man, when she did that, her heart started pounding, her face flushed. She was sure that her husband could see that she wasn't telling the truth, but eventually she became an expert at deceiving her husband and her children, and she could lie without showing it at all. The first time she went to the synagogue and heard the scriptures read after sleeping with the other man, she was sure everyone could read the guilt on her face. She thought they would all find out. She thought her dead with a bolt of lightning, and she vowed to break off the relationship. But no one found out. There was no lightning bolt. God, it seemed, didn't do anything. So she didn't break off the affair. Now she's able to go to the synagogue and hardly think about it at all. She doesn't think much about God either. She tries to think about other things during prayers. And then came the fateful night. She's with the man like she'd been with so many nights before when the bedroom door swung open and in walked a group of men who'd been outside watching and waiting for the perfect moment to seize her. She screamed. She cried. She begged for mercy, but got none. Now she'd give anything to go back in time, to cross back over those lines and undo the whole thing, but she can't. You can never go back. And just like in the garden, her eyes were open and she saw herself naked and ashamed and wanted so. But there was no place to hide. She would have killed herself right there and then if they'd let her, but they don't. Instead, they wrap her up in a bedsheet and take her to Jesus. Can you feel that moment? And what's going wrong in this scene, this place of our imagination as we hear the story and put ourselves in the crowd at the feet of Jesus going, what's going to happen next? What's going wrong? Does your soul stir? Do you read, this, you read the room and be like, something's wrong here? Or many things are wrong? Well, of course there's many things wrong. There's an affair. What else is wrong? There's no man there. Where's the man? As much as forgiveness takes two to tango, having an affair does too. The same law that they bring forward to condemn her also condemns the man. This isn't right. What else is wrong? This woman is no longer a person. She's just a pawn. She's an object to be manipulated for the favor of a bunch of other people. See, sin does this to us, friends. 
It disorients our loves. It seeps into our conscience and dulls our own sense of right and wrong and to peace and harmony. Sin divides. Forgiveness unites. Unforgiveness is the continued separation between us and them. And part of the human condition, I think you might know your own soul this well, is our propensity to think of ourselves and our people and our way of life as different or probably more likely better or worthy of distinction than other people. And Jesus busts down those walls of separation because in Christ there never was and never will be an us or a them. Emo Phillips tells of a story of an unstable woman. It's a humorous story. So who is atop of the Golden Gate Bridge, and she wants to jump and end her life, and he rushes down to intervene, and he says to her, God loves you, and he talks her off the ledge. And he goes on to ask her if she's a person of faith, and she says, yes, I am. He says, are, are you a Christian? Are you a Buddhist? Are you Muslim? Are you Jewish? And he says, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, okay, good, you're a Christian, me too. And he starts thinking, well, are, are, you, are you Protestant? Or are you Catholic? He goes, well, I'm Protestant. Oh, good, me too. Well, okay, you're Protestant, but are, are you Baptist? Oh, you're Baptist too, that's great. How about, no, but are you Northern Baptist or are you Southern Baptist? She says, well, I'm a Northern Baptist. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, she's Northern Baptist. But, okay, are you a conservative or are you a liberal Northern Baptist Protestant Christian? Actually, I'm a conservative. Oh, good, yeah. What, are you fundamentalist or are you reformed? She says, I'm a fundamentalist, conservative Northern Baptist Protestant Christian. But are you a Great Lakes fundamentalist, conservative Northern Baptist Protestant Christian? Or are you an Eastern region I'm Great Lakes. He says, oh, I only have one more question. Are you the Council of 1879 or the Council of 1912? I'm the Council of 1912. So he pushes her off the ledge. <laughs> That's really dark humor, sorry, but I told there's more jokes. Do you feel the us and them? That's humorous and all. But we do this. We create us and them, especially when it comes to those close to us once they've hurt us. The deepest injuries of the heart force us into this way of being that isn't of the gospel, that isn't of Christ. And the first step toward unforgiveness is to think you could have never done to him or her what she or he actually did to you. To claim a moral superiority. I never could have done that. Not that I didn't do it, I couldn't have done that. To think of yourself so far above the broken human nature, so broken that it took incarnate God to take on himself all the sin of the world to rectify and offer forgiveness to everyone. If you think you don't have that propensity in your own heart, you'll never get to the truest sense of living in a freedom way of forgiveness. And the story continues in verse 5. It reads like this. In the law, these people say to Jesus... In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And this guilty party, and by that I mean the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, this guilty party, are hell-bent on justice. Now they are partially correct and that God calls for justice, and the way to address sin is to name it and to accuse it. But that's as far as they go. All they want to do is name and accuse it. And I want to affirm that justice is a necessary part of the forgiveness pathway. Naming sin and injury associated is, I believe, a very important prerequisite of forgiveness, but it is not the sum total of it. Forgiveness is never just ignore what happened mentality. No, forgiveness relentlessly seeks the uncovering of sin in an appropriate way. 
came across a TED talk that was recorded in 2010 between Phyllis Rodriguez and Aisha El-Wafi. Phyllis, her son was killed in the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center in New York. And Aisha's son, Zachariah, was indicted for that crime. Here's the words of Phyllis. I would like to say that I've learned much from Aisha, starting with the day that we had our very first meeting with other family members, which is a very private, secure meeting because it was November 2002, and frankly, we were afraid of the super patriotism of that time in the country, all of us who are family members. We were also nervous. What does she, why does she want to meet us? And then she was nervous. Why did we want to meet her? What did we want from each other? Before we knew each other's names or anything, we embraced and wept. Can you feel that? We sat in a circle with support, with help from people experienced with that level of reconciliation. And Aisha started and she said, I don't know if my son is guilty or innocent, but I want to tell you how sorry I am for what happened to your families. I know what it is to suffer, and I feel that if there is a crime, a person should be fairly tried and punished. I love that truth-telling, but the compassion involved with it. According to Miroslav Wolf, forgiveness, he says, is two essential actions. First, he says, to forgive is to name the wrongdoing and condemn it. But the second element of forgiveness has a positive content. To forgive is to give wrongdoers the gift not of counting their wrong, doing against them. Naming it is very important. That's why I say it's bilateral. It takes two people to acknowledge the injury done. The story continues. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus, only Jesus, was left with the woman standing there. Again, I want you to notice the movement of people in this scene that's created in your own mind as you're sitting there, standing there, hearing things said, watching things being done. What started off as a throng of people, a gaggle of accusers, a guilty person in Jesus, this whole scene going on, has now become a very private conversation between a loving Lord and his soon-to-be restored daughter. Can you feel the intimacy of this moment here? Now, there's some symmetry here between Jesus' words to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees when he said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, the parallel of that to how Jesus himself taught us to pray when he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus is trying to hold up a mirror right to the accuser's face. Now let's note that these people are not actually affected by this sin itself that they've come across in any personal way. He wants to show them their complicity in the affair by their virtue of just being fellow human fallen beings. We like to think of sin as moral missteps or individual errors completely unassociated or isolated from anything else. We're all inflicted with the ubiquity of the brokenness of the world around us that's being restored in and because of Jesus Christ who says these things and eventually takes him to the cross to pay for all forgiveness in himself. 
His brother, James, later on writes that mercy triumphs over justice or over judgment. And then we get to the moments of forgiveness and reconciliation, verse 10, where it reads that Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And I like to think there's a quiver in this woman's voice. She says, no one, sir. She said, and then Jesus, imagine how this is heard to her ears and to her heart and to her whole life. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. Forgiveness, says Dallas Willard, is not a tiny inward act which a discreet effort of will brings forth in response to a specific type of occasions. It's not this personal interior thing I do by myself. Rather, he says, it is part of a product of an overall orientation of our lives of a certain kind. So, Where's your injury? Where's your hurt? You're starting off 2020. It's your first time in gathered worship in Jesus' name right here. Is there something that you don't want to take with you into 2020 that you carried around all of 2019? Or maybe you've been carrying around since 1963 or 1994. Forgiveness or the lack of forgiveness is probably the most important way we mark time. June 20, 2012. I come back to that day a lot. You don't know the story, and I'm not going to tell it to you, but there's a date. There's a time, there's a location, there's a person, and I want to pick up stones and start throwing them, don't I? <laughs> And even in 2020, as you start the new year, I still have to come back and live towards an orientation of forgiveness. And I want to make it just about my own private little affair, but it's not about that. It's about community. A couple of quotes to leave with you as well. Lewis Smead says, Forgiveness is God's invention for coming to terms with a world in which people are unfair to each other and hurt each other deeply. He began by forgiving us. And he invites us all to forgive each other. It's communal. If you ever forgive anybody else, you will never be closer to God than in that moment, I don't think. Theologically, experientially, practically, to sin or to err is human, but to forgive is divine. Miroslav Wolf, he says, when God forgives, offenders need to respond in faith and repentance. But what if they don't repent? He says, like a package, forgiveness will be stuck between the sender who dispatched it and the recipient who refuses to receive it. Offenders will remain unforgiven. The reality of God's forgiveness notwithstanding, the same is true when we forgive. So I'm calling you to your part in the bilateral experience of extending forgiveness, of not holding against someone else what they have done to you. I hope and pray that you can come to full agreement with them, that they can receive that in the naming, the truth-telling of what injury was taking place, and you cannot hold that against him or her anymore. But if they can't, your part is still in the hardship of that to offer out forgiveness since best you can 
June 20th, 2012, or whatever your date is, best you can. And it's not easy. Finally, from Dallas Willard, forgiveness is not a unilateral action, not an imposition of one person upon another, and can only be received from God by one who lives in a pervasive orientation of forgiveness. The dignity of your personhood is at stake when you hold unforgiveness. And the dignity, yes, the dignity of your offender is also at stake when you hold on to unforgiveness. I don't want to pretend this is hard. I warned you at the beginning, guard your heart. You might be not allowing to go there right now, and that's okay. I don't want to rush anything for you. But if I may offer you a blessing and a word from Jesus, from the story of the beautiful scriptures to you, that you might start this year, and any time you start all over again, may it always begin with forgiveness. And you can't do it on your own. You need to come to the end of yourself and realize it's not there and say, oh God, will you give me what I need to offer that forgiveness? So wherever you are at in the journey, may God meet you. And if you meet God, he will always take you in the, just the next step toward forgiveness. Because there's a lot of steps involved. And you'll take a few steps back and you'll grab onto some unforgiveness again. You're like, let's go back there one more time. And there might be some like well-worn paths in the garden of your soul that you've gone back over more times than not. And if you've been married, you know what I'm talking about because you have to ask forgiveness and they do the same thing over again and you're back and forth and you get your workout going for the day. Now, the church I'm part of, Kate Seal Chapel, um, we're so proud of you guys. We're just... Yay, Jesus. Yay, the story of God. God bless Langley. May good things happen. We love your pastor. We love you guys. It's just fantastic. Um, we're a little different kind of a church. That's okay. I love the diversity of how we do things. We got a bit more like um, uh, ancient liturgy involved. We do like reciting creeds and Lord's Prayer every Sunday. We come to the t- and it's, it's just different. It's all fine. But I want to bring a little dusty worship with me to give to you guys today. I want to lead us in a litany, which is a prepared prayer. And it's, if you go to like a high Anglican uh, church service or a Catholic mass, you'll have sometimes these prepared prayers. And it's sort of a call and response. And it's going to be up on the screen here in a second. And I want to offer the first word of prayer. And if you can agree with that, either live in the moment or even just in hope saying, if your agreement by your heart participation and your word participation, if maybe all you're doing is like, may it be someday, I'm not there right now, or whatever you can do. I'd love to offer a prayer for you and you would join me in that prayer by saying, Lord, have mercy in a call response to these prayers. And then I'll end with a a pastoral prayer for all of us in this. So let us pray. And you might want to keep your eyes open so you can kind of follow along. You can pray with your eyes open. That's okay too. And eyes closed. But I'm going to read as we come along together. So let us pray. O God who forgives, we come again to ask forgiveness for times when we continue to hold on to bitterness and resentment Instead of seeking forgiveness, together, Lord, have mercy. Help us to live in a pervasive orientation of forgiveness so that we are able to extend release to those who hurt us. Lord, have mercy. We ask that you give us the divine power to join you in the restoration of all things as we offer forgiveness to others. Lord, have mercy. Help us to break down the walls that separate us from each other, that we will not perpetuate an us versus them mentality. Lord, have mercy. And so will God. 
in this holy ground where you meet us at the foot of the cross. Give us forgiveness for we cannot offer it to anyone else until we've received it ourselves. And Lord, you have received it. You've given it to the world. And sometimes the package is blocked between the sender, you, and us and our lack of faith to receive it. So open our hearts fully that we might just receive the forgiveness you continually offer to us. And of course, from that moment and from that power of release of you not holding against us anything we've done wrong to you and your creation and each other, from that place, inspire us and fill us with your spirit that we might freely and more readily offer that forgiveness to any and all, even maybe before they ask of us. Help us to be ready to have that transaction and embrace and welcome as is possible by your spirit. We trust all things to you, for forgiveness is never from us. It is always from you. Thank you for allowing us into the holiness of receiving and giving forgiveness. Through Jesus, our Lord, who died on the cross, which is the constitution of our faith and all of our unity with you and each other. And Lord, I pray, City Collective, of all the things it may be known for in this land, may it always and first be known because it's a forgiving place. May it always be like that. Bless Jason and Adriana in their wedding, in their honeymoon, in their life of marriage, may they be forgiving people to each other in their relationship. May the gospel of forgiveness be preached regularly right here. And may the gospel of forgiveness be heard right here in every one of these seats week to week to week in the undeniable way that when your spirit encounters our spirit, we can't do anything but say yes and surrender and receive the goodness. This I pray in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to come present for you the word of God today. Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope you enjoyed that message. Please subscribe to stay up to date with every weekly message. For more information on City Collective, please visit www.citycollective.com. Or if you're in the greater Vancouver area, come visit us for a Sunday. You can find more about our church and how you can get involved with what God is doing in the Lower Mainland. Have a great day.